Good morning, good evening, good late night, good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, as we have shared before, we're not just a, a U.S. Uh, operation now. A little bit over half of our content is being uh, consumed by folks outside of the U.S. Today, I'm very excited to have a cardiac surgeon come on and talk about his experiences and his knowledge in terms of um, cardiovascular prevention. You know, you might think, well, we, we may have some fireworks on the show. Actually, uh, you'll be surprised at how uh, well aligned the messages are. In fact, uh, Phil Avadia, uh, Dr. Avadia has written a book which sounds much more like the kind of book that you might hear me write about lifestyle. And it's titled, Stay Off of My Operating Table. Uh, some of you may have heard Dr. Avadia uh, already. I heard him on a couple of podcasts and one of the things that just really impressed me was his position on stents and even uh, bypass. So before we get too, uh, too deep in that discussion, let me go ahead and, and in, do the intro for the show. If you've not been with our channel before, our channel is all about helping people uh, avoid uh, the things that kill us, most likely to kill or disable us. And at the end of the day, most often that ends up being prediabetes, diabetes, cardiovascular inflammation. Uh, <clears throat> well, do we have uh, access to the deck yet, Gilbert? There we go. So again, today the uh, the guest speaker is uh, Dr. Hello, Phil. Doctor. Yes. Sorry, the latest doc is still uploading, but uh, you, you may want to use the previous uh, that, doc for, yeah, that, for uh, that, That's okay. I'll tell you what, why don't we just go ahead and skip over some of the intro information. Uh, you can let me know if and when we get the, uh, the other information available. And one of the things that we were doing uh, for, the, for the viewers is uh, Dr. Avedia has his own personal story regarding his own health. Um, if you've seen him on some other uh, YouTube interviews, you may have heard more about the professional side. Today, we're gonna also talk a little bit more about the personal side and Dr. Avedia's personal story. So uh, uh, Gilbert's uploading a, a before and after picture. So we did some last minute uh, adjustments to make a, a little bit more personal uh, story here. Why don't you go ahead and put Dr. Avedia on and we will, there we go. So Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be here today? Sure thing. And it's an honor to be here with you, uh, Ford. Uh, your community, I think, is certainly well uh, plugged in and leading the way in terms of preventative health. Um, my journey, you know, has been uh, both on the professional and the personal side, uh, an evolution. You know, I struggled with obesity my entire life. Um, but uh, despite that, you know, I, I uh, went through medical school, uh, went through the training to become a cardiac surgeon and uh, went into practice and spent uh, many years taking care of 
people, sick hearts, uh, did over 3,000 uh, heart operations. And for much of that time, I was becoming progressively unhealthy myself. I got to a point about seven years ago where I was morbidly obese. I was pre-diabetic. And I realized that I was going to end up on my own operating table, so to speak. Um, I was going down the same pathway that many of my patients had. And more importantly, I guess, more concerning maybe, is that in following the same advice that I had been educated to give them, uh, I was getting sicker and sicker. And this was a pattern I saw in myself, a pattern that I saw in them. The standard advice, eat less, move more, you know, eat a low-fat diet, eat according to the U.S. dietary guidelines in the food pyramid, uh, had failed me and it was failing them. Thankfully, I started to ask some different questions and come across some different information. And I figured out first how to improve my own health. And then I started using that to help uh, friends and family and ultimately help patients. And along the way, I realized that our entire approach to heart disease uh, was wrong and that I didn't really understand the disease that I was treating every day. Uh, and once you do really understand what the true causes of that are, uh, you come to different approaches as to how best to treat it that certainly we'll get into during this discussion. Um, so, you know, I continue to work as a cardiac surgeon. I continue to do heart surgery actively on the people that need it. Uh, but I have a another mission, I would say, a, you know, bigger mission in life, which is now to keep people from needing heart surgery, to keep people off of my operating table. And that's what led me to write the book, uh, you know, and all the other things that I am doing now along, the, you know, along those lines to keep people healthy. Uh, because I think first and foremost, we need to be educating people that it not only is possible, but it should be expected that you actually stay healthy. Um, and things like heart disease, diabetes, many of the things we battle against are preventable, are reversible, and should not be a part of everyday life as they are today. So it wasn't just any program that you went through, and it wasn't just any... Um, any cardiothoracic training program. It's, you know, it's bad enough or tough enough to go through cardiothoracic training, but you also did that at an Ivy League school, right? Um, so I uh, did my cardiac, my uh, cardiothoracic training at Tufts uh, up in Boston. Uh, not, not quite Ivy League, but uh, pretty close. Um, but yeah, it was a, a rigorous training program. Um, and as all cardiac surgery training is, um, you know, as you're well aware, uh, there are surgery, it's going into surgery itself is certainly one of the more difficult training paths going into cardiac surgery is, uh, even a step above and, uh, among, uh, the most, uh, difficult training that you can go through. And I certainly spent, uh, you know, seven, uh, long years, um, you know, figuring out um, or uh, learning all that you one needs to learn uh, to uh, get out into practice and also realize that, um, you know, you're not done learning once you get out into practice. And I think this becomes very relevant as we get into this conversation around nutrition and, 
and uh, preventative medicine and, um, you know, just realizing that the day you finish medical school, the day you finish your medical training, uh, you should not be done learning as a physician. I think phys- being a good physician involves that true lifelong learning. And as much as we sort of uh, pay lip service to that in the healthcare industry, um, we don't really put it into practice as physicians as much as we should. To that point, I'm going to share just a few seconds of my own story. So even in med school, I went to med school and uh, started med school at South Carolina, MUSC, um, did a rotating internship at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, and was already seeing by that time, I had had some interests uh, originally in surgery. And it became clear to me, even in med school, I didn't think surgery, you know, they have, it has a place, but the place that if you really wanted to change people's health was seemed somewhere different. And I just couldn't put my finger on it. So I said, okay, I'm just going to do some ER. At the time I went through, I'm old. Uh, It was uh, 81. At the time I went through, you could go into emergency medicine. It was just turning into a specialty at that point. So uh, I started in emergency medicine and I had one, some of those uh, moments that you, uh, you talk about or you imply in your book where it's like, there's still something more. If you want to focus on patient's health, you know, for me in the emergency room, it was that yet another a uh, patient with a heart attack or stroke that coulda, woulda, shoulda been not in there with that. And it, and in the ER, the, your real claim to, fl- to fame is just to do a code on somebody, which is way too much and way too late. And it's got some characteristics very similar to, uh, to most surgical procedures that are being done. I'm going to throw a curve uh, on you. Um, <clears throat> well, before I do, uh, a little bit more about my story. So I said, look, it, this is not about me. It's about patients. So <clears throat> this might require me to become a couple of the things that I never, ever, ever wanted to be. And one is a bean counter. The other is a teacher. And so I ended up going to Hopkins uh, for prevention and became a bean counter. You know, at Hopkins at Hygiene, we were talking about, we always talk about denominator medicine, meaning we really look at what drives disease, which means we focus on the underlying risk factors. And in cardiovascular disease, in the things that are really killing us, that has to do with patient lifestyle a lot more than it has to do with anything you can do in your OR or that I could do writing scripts, or clearly anything I could do running codes in the ER. So, yep, I, uh, I got into becoming a bean counter, looking at epidemiology, denominator medicine, and uh, educating. So it's interesting, it was very interesting for me to read your book and watch the progression that you described. I'm going to throw, I mentioned I'm going to throw a little bit of a curve to you. We talked about 
going into discussing the Orbita and Courage and Ischemia trials a little bit later. But since you just mentioned that, why don't we go ahead and, and talk about that early? And then we'll go back to your personal story. So uh, I've mentioned the Orbita and the Courage and the Ischemia trials many, many times on this channel. Uh, so as you might see, this is not your typical YouTube channel. The folks that watch this are significantly more in tune with the true evidence behind medicine and medical studies. So <clears throat> just a couple of quick uh, reviews on it. The Courage trial was done, gosh, maybe a decade ago um, before uh, Tim Russert died. In fact, the doctor that took care of him mentioned that trial and said, it's becoming really clear that stents don't prevent heart attacks. What was that, a decade ago? And so it's like, um, what was the result? You would think that there would be a significant decrease in stents. Not at all the case, as you know. Uh, they just continue to increase. So then, then there was the Orbiter trial, which would never have been done in the U.S. because they actually took people and said, we're only going to take people that have indications for a stent. Then we're going to take them into the OR, completely randomize them at that point, and then see if they, uh, the study group has the, the, the standard group has the, uh, has the stent, and the placebo group doesn't have a stent. They go, took them through the whole OR experience, but didn't put a stent in. Again, the results were, um, guess what? Stents did not prevent heart attack. Now, stents are not totally worthless. They can be life-saving, but only at the, you know, at the right time, usually when you're having an event. And it's like, so you would think that based on those two studies, 90% of stents would go away. They didn't. And here's where you come in. Again, you would expect to see stents to go away, and you didn't. You saw them increase. And here you are in the industry, in that space. You don't do stents, but you're right there, uh, shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow with the folks that do them. And I I heard you on a video say, I think the medical community needs to apologize to patients. So one of the questions I have is, uh, did you get blowback from that? Did you get, you know, how did the rest, was there any reaction from the rest of the medical community when you made that comment? Well, you know, so I think the, um, you know, what we see around, uh, cardiovascular disease uh, and these procedures, whether you're talking about stents or you're talking about heart bypass surgery, um, is really, you know, emblematic of our entire medical system in that we've become so focused on treating the acute problems, the end stages of these diseases, and basically treating the symptoms without addressing the underlying causes, as you said. And unless we start addressing underlying root causes, it's really kind of foolhardy that we would even think that these things would be all that useful in the first place. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly we did, and our medical system has largely evolved around doing things, doing procedures. 
Um, you know, as a surgeon, I can, you know, certainly, you know, obviously I was trained to do surgery. Um, the interventional cardiologists that put in stents, same thing, they're trained to put in stents. So I guess, you know, you would say, okay, it's sort of natural for the system to say, well, we should be finding as many people that, as we can to try and help them with these procedures that we, you know, have become so good at doing. Um, but the, again, the problem is, is that we've lost sight of um, the underlying things, the problems that lead to someone needing a stent, uh, and I'll say needing uh, in the uh, air quotes, uh, because we can certainly, as we've been alluding to, uh, what is perceived by the medical system as, you know, justifying a procedure is not necessarily uh, the, the same as someone that's going to benefit from that procedure. So I think in general, we certainly need to step back in medicine and we need to start focusing more on the root cause issues. Uh, and certainly that is specifically true when we look at the management of heart disease these days. Uh, the, you know, heart disease has been the number one killer in the United States now for 50 plus years uh, worldwide uh, as well. It remains the number one killer. And we look at our whole treatment paradigm around heart disease. We look at stents. We look at bypass surgery. Um, we look at, you know, pharmaceutical therapy. Uh, that's supposed to be reducing our risk of heart disease. And it really becomes hard to see any significant impact. Uh, you know, there has been a little bit of a decrease, uh, you know, when you zoom out and look between about 1990 and, you know, early 2000s, the incidence of heart disease here in the United States, at least, was going down. Um, that was largely attributable to uh, decreasing smoking rates. Um, but, you know, over the past 10 to 15 years, it has leveled off and then is on the increase again. Uh, the last five years in particular, there's a noticeable increase in the, uh, you know, number of heart disease deaths and the overall incidence of heart disease. So, you know, you then have to step back. If we're looking at this logically, if we're looking at the big picture, you have to say, okay, all of this stuff we're doing is failing. What does all of this stuff have in common? Um, it's trying to basically cover up the symptoms of end-stage disease, and it is not addressing the primary root causes of heart disease, um, which again are very well known, very well demonstrated, uh, you know, in the medical literature. Uh, you know, uh, Jerry Reven, uh, you know, going back to the late 1970s, early 1980s clearly demonstrates the role of insulin resistance in the, in the uh, development of heart disease, um, yet we don't have the easy drug, we don't have the, um, you know, stent-like procedure, uh, I guess you could say, that addresses insulin resistance. So we kind of put our head in, our, in the sand and we say, well, we're not going to, you know, do the hard work of diet and lifestyle uh, to address um you know, the underlying insulin resistance, and we're just going to keep uh, treating the end stages of this disease, the symptoms of the end stage of this disease uh, as best we can. And unfortunately, as I said, that's not specific to heart disease. That is what our medical system has evolved to. We've become a sick care system where we only focus on, you know, 
putting band-aids on, treating the symptoms, and we do a very poor job of treating, identifying and treating the root causes behind all of these diseases. There's, um, it reminds me of a saying, and again, the folks on our channel, have, if they've heard me say it once, they've heard me say it a thousand times. You can't out-prescribe a lifestyle issue. You also can't out-supplement a, a lifestyle issue. And you certainly cannot outstint a lifestyle issue. Now, when I heard you say that, I was very impressed. And then I thought, well, now, wait a minute. He's, he's still a uh, surgeon. And here's what a lot of folks uh, came out uh, with as a result of the Courage and uh, Orbita trials. They said, well, I guess what we found out is that stents aren't going to prevent heart attacks. It's going to have to be a bypass. And then out came the ischemia trial. And again, I was, I was surprised to hear you, you took that on and you dealt with the reality of it. You want to speak to that for a minute? Yeah. So, um, you know, the ischemia trial uh, largely mirrored the results of, you know, Orbiter and Courage looking at surgery and, you know, as opposed to stents. Uh, and, you know, it basically shows that for people with uh, what we call stable angina, um, that uh, surgery ends up, you know, not being benefit. Uh, it does not uh, at least you know, it, it does not prevent um, fatal heart attacks and, uh, you know, showed very little benefit. And of course, you know, heart surgery um, has more risk associated with it than a stent does. Um, you know, it's just a, a bigger procedure. Uh, and we've become a lot better at heart surgery over the years, um, but it's still not a, you know, low risk procedure. I certainly wouldn't, I don't think anyone would classify it as a low risk procedure. So we should be thinking long and hard before we do it. Um, I can certainly say, I think a lot longer and a lot harder about doing uh, heart surgery these days than I, than I did uh, in the early part of my career. And more importantly, I think what we need to recognize, uh, what I recognize, what I discuss with my patients is surgery is a Band-Aid. Um, you know, in the right situation, yes, surgery can be life-saving um, and it can greatly benefit in terms of quality of life and quantity of life, but it does not address the root cause of the problem. And unless we start marrying those two approaches, you know, for people who have advanced heart disease that need heart surgery, I'm not saying don't do the surgery. What I'm saying is do the surgery, but also we need to address those diet and lifestyle issues uh, that are going to address the actual root cause of what led to you getting the surgery in the first place so that you're not going to end up back on my operating table uh, or someone else's operating table or back on the catheterization table getting a stent after you've had heart surgery, all of which are very common uh, occurrences. And you're not, you know, hopefully we can prevent you from dying of that same disease uh, that we put all of this effort in, you know, to the surgery to, uh, you know, to fix. Uh, and again, I put fix in uh, kind of air quotes there because we know that surgery doesn't actually fix heart disease. It just improves the symptoms of heart disease. To your point, as you can imagine, I get a lot of folks that come to me 
And um, these days now that every uh, the pa the patients I'm seeing are all coming through the channel, over half of them have lost 30 pounds. And so it's very interesting. I end up seeing plaque in their studies, but then I don't see nearly as much insulin resistance. And we have to go back and rebuild and say, yeah, 30 pounds ago, you were significantly in insulin resistant or even diabetic. But now you've lost that, that body fat and you don't have it. The other thing that I have with my patients is I get folks where a doctor, a cardiologist will see them or a surgeon will see them and say, you need to have surgery or you need to have a procedure. You need to have a stent. They come to me and then they'll say, uh, I just want to confirm with you that I don't need to have one or I'm getting ready to have one, but I want you to tell me that I shouldn't. And I, you know, it's interesting. They get, often get disappointed with me because I tend to have a little bit more of a position that I thought I heard with you. And that is my position is that stents, uh, doing a stent, yes, I've covered it. I, I wrote a book and it, the dangers associated with a stent were in that in one of those chapters, but they're not really that big. Uh, clearly a little bit more damage or a little bit more danger associated with a full, uh, you know, opening the chest up and doing what you do. But still, in my mind, um, we've got some images. I'll, uh, Gilbert, hold those and we will, we'll get to those in just a minute. Um, in my mind, the real danger clearly of stents and even in what you do is not so much what you do. The danger is thinking that, okay, my plumbing's been fixed. I don't have to do anything. And that is the danger. Yeah, exactly that. And, you know, again, we, we see it with medications too. You know, we think that we, you know, whether you're looking at cardiovascular disease or type two diabetes, and, you know, uh, most physicians view it as, okay, we're going to put you on the medications and that's going to take care of the problem. That's going to eliminate the danger, but we know it doesn't. Uh, you know, when you look at type two diabetes, uh, you know, for instance, um, we start these medications and we know the natural history. You're going to need more medication over time. You're going to still be at high risk for getting the complications like, you know, vascular disease, needing amputations, blindness, kidney disease. Um, we know that all these things are downstream and maybe the medications do a little bit to kind of, you know, push them off. Uh, but again, unless you address that root cause, you know, why did we develop type 2 diabetes in the first place? And what can we do to reverse type 2 diabetes, which we know is very possible? Um, you're, uh, you know, you're still putting yourself at risk uh, for all of these downstream effects. And we uh, just tend to, we don't talk about that as much as we should in medicine. Um, yeah. Everyone... I had a patient, a go, or not a patient, but a, a friend, uh, a coworker who worked with me in, um, in managed care 30 years ago. He came on last week. He went on to become a hospital executive. He ran a couple of hospitals and ran a couple of uh, large operations for hospitals. He was diagnosed as, he shared this, I'm not sharing his information, but he shared that he was diagnosed as having uh, type 2 diabetes. He went on one of the new, what many people are considering, quote, mi uh, miracle drugs, the GLP-1s, um, 
went on Trulicity and he was on it for like a year and a half, really did not lose any weight. It was helping with the diabetes side, but did not lose any weight. And then he made a commitment to change his lifestyle, lost 45 pounds and made a huge change in his health. So again, it underlines your comment about surgery is not going to fix this problem. Stents aren't going to fix this problem. Uh, that we've got some really blockbuster new drugs that are coming out that help a lot, but they're not going to fix the problem either until and unless the patient makes that commitment to make some changes in their lifestyle. Now, at this point, what I'd like to do, uh, I think we've set the stage, and then I think there are three ways we could go, and I'll ask you which to pick one of them. We could talk more about your own personal experience in this space. We could talk a little bit more about one of the reactions that you had, and that was you wrote a book about it to share this issue. Uh, and the third one was you developed a new practice. It's similar to mine where you're doing, I think, some telemedicine for basic uh, prevention as opposed to just, just doing the surgery. Uh, I'd ask you, do you agree those are three places we could go? And if so, uh, where would you, would you like to go next? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the first one certainly leads into the second and the third. Um, you know, I think uh, my experience uh, kind of in the healthcare system, uh, I think, uh, you know, can help people to understand um, how they should be approaching the healthcare system, how they should be navigating the healthcare system these days. And uh, certainly happy to talk about that some more. And I'm sure we'll, we'll work into uh, the book and the practice uh, as we go through that conversation. Sounds good. So do you want um, Gilbert to share your before and after picture or? Sure just... thing. Okay. Happy to uh, give people a sense of where I've come from. And I think that's an important part of, uh, you know, my view on this, because not only am I a heart surgeon, uh, but, you know, I'm a patient as it is. Uh, and I've had my own healthcare challenges. And certainly the healthcare system uh, failed me personally. Um, and I, you know, if it can fail the practitioners, uh, of this, if so many of us are so unhealthy, and by the way, you know, physicians uh, are very unhealthy as a group, um, you know, what chance do we have of helping others to be healthy, preventing others from being sick if we can't do it for ourselves? So Gilbert, uh, do you have that image that you, there you go. Wow. Yeah, so, and that that before image is, uh, I believe that one was from about 2014 or so. And uh, the after is, uh, I think that one might be from last year at this point. But as I said, I, you know, ultimately lost over 100 pounds. Uh, more importantly, I've been able to maintain that weight loss uh, for, you know, five plus years now. And uh, all of my markers, my pre-diabetes, uh, you know, got better. Um, I would say, you know, all of my markers of health that I think are important, things like insulin sensitivity, uh, you know, continue to be good. And um, I've, uh, 
you know, and we can get into a lot of this, but, you know, my, my lipid markers uh, may not be what is considered ideal by mainstream medicine, uh, but I've had coronary artery calcium scans uh, on a repeated basis. I have no evidence of coronary artery disease on those scans. Uh, so I would, you know, uh, say that all looks good. Uh, more importantly, perhaps, is I feel the best I have in my life. Um, you know, I'm literally wearing smaller clothes than I did in high school. Uh, I have endless amounts of energy now, as opposed to when I used to fall asleep in my office every afternoon, uh, you know, after I had completed surgery and would need that sort of nap and a bunch of coffee to get through the rest of my day. Uh, and now, you know, endless energy to continue to be, you know, a busy cardiac surgeon. Uh, running a telemedicine practice, as you mentioned, uh, you know, going on podcasts like this, hosting my own podcast uh, as well, and, uh, you know, being more present uh, in my life for my family, for my children, for my wife. Uh, these are all the side effects, I guess we could say, of, you know, addressing root causes, improving your metabolic health, and focusing on these diet and lifestyle issues. So thank you so much for sharing that. Neat story. <clears throat> Anything else you want to share in that space before you, uh, before you get into uh, a couple of the responses? Yeah, I think uh, one of the other important uh, things I learned along the way is that, uh, and this will kind of lead us into the rest of the discussion, you know, there isn't one right answer uh, for everyone. This isn't a simple problem. And, uh, you know, I'm not out here, uh, you know, selling the Dr. Ovedia 28 day diet plan. Uh, I know you, you, you know, don't have the Dr. Brewer 28 day diet plan. Um, this is a process that people need to work through. Um, and, you know, you talked about mentioned earlier, you mentioned, you know, that you didn't intend to become a teacher, but we really can't separate uh, medicine being a physician from being a teacher. And, you know, I like you probably didn't, I, I didn't realize that early on either. I didn't think of myself as a teacher, uh, you know, at the beginning of my medical career, but certainly today I do. And I realize that our role is to educate the patients, is to guide patients through this process and help them to figure out uh, what works for them, what's best for them. Uh, and, you know, there are going to be some common themes in all that. Uh, and this is a lot of what I talk about in the book, the sort of, uh, you know, we are humans. We do have basic uh, physiology that we all share uh, that uh, kind of dictates what's going to be good and bad for the majority of us. Um, but there's a pretty wide range within that that we then each as individuals need to seek out, um, you know, what is truly optimal for us. And that, even within the individual, is going to change over time. Uh, you know, what I needed to do, uh, some of the lifestyle interventions that I made to get myself healthy uh, are not necessarily the things that I now do today to keep myself healthy. And I think that's an important realization that people need to come to uh, about uh, just a lot of this is self-experimentation um, with proper guidance. You know, uh, Gilbert, if you can show a 
uh, image of uh, Phil's book, I would appreciate it. I think we're getting into some of the discussion about uh, some of the things that I read in the book. And I would, I would echo your comments, Phil. Um, I really irritate a lot of people because they keep saying, hey, Doc, will you, uh, here, if you'll, if you'll put it up, I can go over to that. There we go. Perfect. They say, hey, Doc, just, you know, quit talking about facts and evidence and all of that and just tell me what to do. <laughs> and and my I used to just sort of stutter around and try to figure out what they what worked for them. And then I just got, you know, pretty clear on the channel. If that's what you want, this is the wrong place for you. I'm not going to tell you what to do because the right one, the, the one right answer doesn't work for everybody. It's very, very different. Um, if you're a patient, it's easy for me to know the science and the medicine. The hard part is for me to figure out what works for you. So it's a very, very different kind of process. And that's what I saw when I read uh, Phil Avedia's book on, hey, guys, uh, it became really clear that surgery is not the answer for everybody. And in fact, I needed some of my own answers. And here's where I found them. Uh, <clears throat> while we're talking about the book, you shared something that we mentioned before about uh, uh, about a, uh, a GI uh, reaction to some of the a very, very common food. Do you want to you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah. So, you know, one of the earliest uh, uh, steps in my process um, was uh, the elimination of, of gluten from my diet. Uh, and, you know, this actually um, was first suggested to my wife who was uh, dealing with some uh, issues, um, you know, uh, that in, in retrospect were clearly inflammatory, um, you know, kind of the day-to-day -day aches and pains, uh, a lot of heartburn. Um, it was what she was having. And it was suggested uh, by a practitioner to her uh, to go uh, gluten-free. And, um, you know, honestly, I was skeptical of that at first because, you know, I was still in my mainstream medical thinking and I was thinking, well, you know, you don't have uh, celiac disease. So, um, you know, how is this going to uh, benefit you? Um, but I was uh, open enough and supportive enough to say, I'll try it with you. And um, we uh, first eliminated uh that was sort of our first foray into health improvement, uh, going gluten-free. And I immediately noticed great success, uh, a great improvement. Um, not necessarily that I lost weight, um, just that I felt better. You know, I had mentioned earlier how I would commonly fall asleep in my office in the afternoon after completing surgery. Um, and uh, that got better uh, pretty quickly. And, you know, it got me thinking about, you know, why that might be. Um, because here I was, uh, not someone who had the overt signs of celiac disease, uh, yet clearly eliminating gluten was uh, beneficial to my life. Um, that ultimately led me down, uh, you know, the low carb uh, pathway and eliminating processed food in general. Uh, and uh, that has led to great uh, improvement in my life. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting how 
again, we as the healthcare system will look at something like celiac disease uh, and clearly, you know, people with celiac disease should be avoiding gluten, but we don't realize that most of us actually don't react well to this. And it probably shouldn't be a common part of any, uh, you know, any of our diet. So um, it's just an interesting anecdote, I would say, along, uh, along my journey and many others uh, you know, that I have worked with have experienced, have had similar experiences. The, uh, the viewers of my channel I, I know that I go down a lot of bunny holes and just an excursion, like you just mentioned. And you and I went some somewhat down that excursion. Um, I'm going to go down there because I used to apologize for them. And then uh, I got so much feedback, quit apologizing. The excursions are sometimes the, the most fun part. So this is a geeky excursion. So <clears throat> I shared your skepticism about gluten-free diet. Uh, it, was, it seemed to me to be a fad, and it seemed to me that it's probably not worthwhile. Until I started looking and finding some things out, uh, one of the things I found out was a thing called zonulin, which is a what we call a pro-protein, which means it's a protein before it's the last part of an amino acid chain has been cleaved off. It's a pro-protein for a thing called uh, haptoglobin 2. And <clears throat> so what's haptoglobin 2 got to do with any of this? Well, at the end of the day, our bloodstream uh, gets peppered with some oxidative stress on a regular basis. It comes in the, in the form of iron. Iron, which is being carried by hemoglobin, and hemoglobin, which is coming from red cells that get old, and blow up. So we have a mechanism for cleaning up that, that hemoglobin and that iron. And that mechanism is a molecule called haptoglobin. Again, there's a genetic variation for it. And I'll go a little bit deeper and use another geeky science term, allelic frequency. Allelic frequency. Allele means, uh, you know, you've got your wild type or quote normal allele, which doesn't create risk, but then you've got your high risk allele. And the high risk allele in this case is haptoglobin 2. There's a fellow, by the way, named Alessio Fasano. He used to be, he's a pediatric gastroenterologist from Italy, used to be stuffed into the back uh, of the library at University of Maryland until and people were hearing his stuff and he was talking about things like leaky gut and guys like you and me were saying, oh, that's silly. And guess what? Haptoglobin, you know, they now have the genetic uh, location, the, gen the genes associated with it. Now they've mapped the entire amino acid sequence for both the protein and the pro-protein. They've demonstrated so many things. One of the things they've demonstrated is for that group, it appears that that may be doing, uh, that may be associated with more of the cardiovascular inflammation, oxidative stress that you see with diabetics than anything else. Why would that be? And why would, uh, why would it be so prevalent? I used to work at a human, human genetics lab and as you get deeper into the science behind um, haptoglobin and, uh, and zonulin, it's, uh, it was pretty clear that haptoglobin appears to have been a mutation that happened in, uh, 
in the tropics, a little bit north of India, probably about 30 generations back. And it was, I'll, I'll digress a little bit politically for a second. So I was working on that with a couple of people in this human genetics lab. And I, I asked the question, so why would it become so prevalent? So in other words, uh, where I'm going is that the allele is found in at least 50% of situations. So since we have two alleles, we've got two sets of genetic, you know, two copies of our genetic information. If, if an allele is seen 50% of the time, that means three quarters of us have at least one of those genes. That's very, very prevalent. Why would that be so prevalent? Well, it became clear, and I and I asked my friend, the the uh, lab epidemiologist from Vanderbilt, in the room with me. He said, "Well, you know, clearly there was um, there was pressure, there was genetic pressure because that increased oxidation decreases the risk for uh, malaria." So, and it's like, my goodness, you're going to get into human evolution in a in a discussion. He's a, he's a devout Catholic. The other guy in the, in the uh, room with us was a, uh, a born again Christian. And I teach Sunday school and all three. And I looked and I said, look at this group. And we're talking about that. And they looked at me like, yeah, so. So anyhow, the point was, once you get into science, uh, you may have a different perspective than folks that, uh, that don't about things that become really political and maybe shouldn't be. Anyhow, I'm going to go back and say, well, what has this got to do with celiac disease? Again, zonulin appears to be a causative component of celiac. Zonulin does a thing called opening the, um, the toll receptors uh, within the uh, um, there, there are ways for our immune, uh, for our, um, our intestines to keep a, uh, an, an intact, um, I'm, I'm getting into, I'm stumbling over words now. You may want to take, take over. If yeah. You want. Getting the, uh, keeping the barrier, you know, preventing this, uh, leaky gut that we see, uh, so commonly these days that, you know, the proteins, uh, that are in some of these foods, that normally our bodies wouldn't get exposed to when the gut is, you know, intact and working properly. Um, the gut becomes inflamed uh, and these proteins can now start to leak across this barrier. Our bodies recognize them as a foreign substance and it sets off the inflammation cascade. And, you know, it's interesting that when you start to look at all these different disease processes, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, many forms of cancer, type two diabetes, um, you know, and, and these, you would say, you know, well, there, you know, there's no relationship between these if you're just sort of looking at the end products of these diseases. Um, but what we do know is that they all start in a common place. Uh, and that common place is inflammation. Um, and, you know, again, this manifests as things like insulin resistance, what I, you know, call poor metabolic health uh, as I go through the book. Uh, but, you know, there are all these different uh, 
I guess, terms for it, but um, these are the common, these are the root cause issues, um, you know, that, that you and I now talk about and recognize as so important uh, because it gives us, these are the interventions that we can, you know, target, so to say, uh, with diet and lifestyle uh, that can become so powerful because they are actually getting at the root causes of these diseases. And therefore, you know, we can, in many cases, reverse them, we can stop them from progressing, uh, and we can really have, you know, meaningful impact uh, on patients' lives, ultimately. But uh, it isn't, I was just going to say, it is interesting, you know, as, as you were kind of alluding to, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is you start to look at all of these different dietary strategies. Um, you look at things like a gluten-free diet. You look at a, you know, Atkins, low-carb type diet. Uh, you look at the vegan diet. You look at the carnivore diet, um, which most people would say they don't share anything in common. They're 100, you know, 80 degree opposites. Uh, but the reality is that they do share a lot in common. They eliminate yeah. processed food first and foremost. Uh, and um, that seems to be the benefit of, uh, you know, that seems to be where people get benefit from. And so that's what I, one of the things I tried to do in the book was to try and connect those dots and, uh, you know, find what are the sort of basic tenets of uh, improving our metabolic health, the basic principles uh, and, you know, and then, educate people as to how they can then implement these things in their daily lives. Very good point. Same place I was going. So I'll tend to say, look, you need to know the situation. And the most common situation that we have in terms of our own bodies and our ability to eat foods is that starting at age 30, over half of us develop insulin resistance. We used to think it was age 60, and a third of us. That's what the CDC still says on their site. But if you look at the new information from UCLA and now from uh, national JAMA studies, national surveys uh, that were published in JAMA Network, it's not age 60, it's as early as age 30, and it's not 30% of us, it's half of us. So if half of us are at a point to where we have some resistance to insulin. In other words, we cannot eat uh, carbs in a healthy fashion as well as we could. Then we just need to back off of that just a little bit. And to your point, you don't have to worry so much about the diets you just mentioned. Every one of the diets that I heard you mention are going to result uh, in you eating few, fewer carbs, even if it's just a gluten-free diet, because guess what? You're cutting out the number one source of carbs in the standard American diet, and that's grain products. Yeah, very, very much true. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would certainly agree with that. I, I would say that the statistics, you know, are even more alarming than you mentioned. Um, you know, when you look at around statistics around uh, metabolic health and cardiometabolic health, you know, again, we know uh, that 88% uh, of adults in the United States as of the 2016 NHANES data uh, do not meet all five criteria of metabolic health. Uh, so 88% of us are sick. Um, you know, when you look specifically at heart disease, um, we have data going back to the 1970s, 1980s, um, you know, that uh, show that 
the vast majority, more than 90% of patients who end up with a heart attack, uh, for instance, are insulin resistant. Um, now, they may not have been formally diagnosed as diabetics, uh, but if you look at the right markers, you can demonstrate that they are insulin resistant. And uh, I, you know, at this point, I believe it is very clear, um, you know, that cardiovascular disease equals insulin resistance. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Reven, um, you know, would say that, uh, you know, there are two types of patients with heart disease. Uh, the ones that have been diagnosed as diabetics and the ones that don't know that they're diabetics. Just don't know it. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, uh, again, you know, we don't give, we don't uh, recognize that enough. And so that leads us down these wrong pathways of, uh, you know, how we should be treating these diseases. Really, really good point. And for sake of emphasis, I'm going to repeat that. A slightly different version, but but almost exactly the same. There, for the most part, most of us in this space uh, would say there are two types of cardiovascular patients: ones that know they have insulin resistance, diabetes, prediabetes, and those that don't know it, they have it. Now, there are some exceptions, and I do see some of those exceptions, but they're not very common. That's where I go. First, first place when I'm uh, when I'm seeing a cardiovascular patient, it's what is that insulin, uh, what is that insulin reaction, and um, I think this might be a good place to segue into your practice. I'll I'll do that by making a comment, follow up comment to the one I just made. People ask me, what's the most important thing you do? Well, in terms of looking at patients, it's very lab driven. Patients call our, our practice. Michelle uh, gets them registered and then gets them set up for labs. And here's the one lab that's by far the most important. It's an OGTT with insulin response. So uh, we want to know, you know, a lot of people, the vast majority of diabetes and prediabetes is picked up not even through hemoglobin A1C, which most doctors think that they do. When you actually look at the numbers, most often it's just discovered on a, on a fasting glucose that happened to be uh, drawn for something else. Now, if you ask docs, if you go to HEDIS and some of the quality organizations, they'll say, no, no, you need to look at A1C and that's what we really do. That's not what we really do. The science is already out there. It's shown what, what doctors really do. You miss at least 20%. Um, usually a lot more, I think a lot more, of cases of uh, diabetes with that alone. And you miss a lot more of, of the cases with prediabetes or what's often called insulin resistance by just looking at a snapshot. What we need to know is how your body reacts to a challenge from glucose because we've just been talking about diet. You look at the standard American diet, uh, with snacks up to six times a day, people are stuffing carbs, food, and usually the food has carbs in it, into their body. Well, that creates a whole metabolic response. And you need to know what that metabolic response is. So that's a little bit about what I do. And it, again, it was very interesting to read your book, to he hear some of your videos and see that 
Philip went way further than I did in terms of going down that surgical training process. And then now he's ended up in a similar place in terms of saying, we got to be teachers. We got to go back and focus on lifestyle. And you do that with your practice. You want to describe that for us? Yeah, sure thing. So, um, you know, my practice is uh, completely telemedicine based. Um, it's uh, it's at ovadiahearthealth.com for anyone uh, that might be interested in uh, working with me. Um, but, you know, I largely do, uh, you know, the same thing as you described there, you know, um, we need to um, identify these root causes. And, you know, almost always that root cause is insulin resistance. You know, most of the patients that find me uh, because of my background as a heart surgeon, you know, find me from the heart disease uh, aspect of it. Uh, but it's interesting that we end up, uh, you know, looking at their diabetes, uh, looking at their thyroid disease, uh, looking at their hormonal uh, you know, general hormonal health, uh, all of these things come into play uh, because they all tie back to the metabolic health aspect of it. Um, and so um, I also tend to do the deep dive uh, on, you know, uncovering insulin resistance. Um, the, you know, the OGTT with insulin response, the so-called craft test uh, can be very helpful. Uh, it is kind of cumbersome. Uh, one of the, uh, I guess, maybe shortcuts, you know, that I tend to use is the lipoprotein insulin resistance uh, score. Um, uh, you know, I do a, a lot of advanced lipid testing with patients. Um, and, you know, it's kind of ironic because I talk about, um, you know, how lipids are the wrong focus uh, for heart disease. Um, you know, and especially in the way that most physicians look at lipids and only focus on the LDL cholesterol. Uh, but it turns out that we can get a lot of useful information from looking at lipids. We just need to look at it in the right way. And so when you start to look at the advanced lipid panels, the, the nuclear, you know, the NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance panels that show you size distributions of these lipid particles, and you can actually look at that pattern and determine a person's degree of insulin sensitivity off of that lipid uh, size distribution. Uh, that is where we really get to the useful information. And then tracking these things over time, uh, because the baseline assumption uh, that I come into it with is that, you know, if you're coming to me with heart disease, you're insulin resistant. Um, we need to just demonstrate that and then we need to track it as it improves with these diet and lifestyle interventions. Uh, so, you know, that, that tends to be my approach. And then, you know, we certainly use other metrics. I'm a big fan of the coronary artery calcium scan uh, because for people who don't have established clinical heart disease, um, you know, we want to, again, be able to track that disease process early on and similar to the way that insulin allows us to track the diabetes continuum early on, the coronary artery calcium scan allows us to track the heart disease continuum early on. And that's when we have the best chance of intervening. And uh, the CAC score uh, becomes a great tool for measuring progress along those lines. The, uh, it's very interesting to me. The second most important uh, study is the fractionation or the, in, the lipid in, 
very analogous to the lipid N NMR. We've done several videos uh, on the impact of uh, insulin resistance on uh, HDL size and HDL, uh, uh, the amount of HDL that we have, the impact on the, um, the population, the bell curve on uh, LDL, how it gets smaller, you know, how everybody thought, you know, they knew there was a risk factor in terms of small dense LDL, but they didn't know how that happened. And you know what, it turns out it's all driven by our insulin uh, responsiveness, our metabolic profile. So we've covered a lot. Uh, anything else before we go into a Q&A session? I think, uh, I think we, like you said, we've hit on a lot of the high points. We've uh, certainly covered a lot. I think there's going to be a lot more to discuss. Some of that will certainly come out in the Q&A. And uh, I, you know, I'm sure that we will uh, continue this conversation uh, in the future as well. I, I, there's a lot more to discuss. Hopefully we can get you back. So a couple of comments, Rick Folia, read Dr. Avedia's book, very even-handed and well-explained. I would personally agree with that. Bobby Ocampo's in the Philippines, by the way, and Mabuhai means live long and prosper. Jose Senarega, uh, hello from Spain. Vagabond, Vagabond uh, Sojourner comes on quite a bit. Should be a great conversation. Uh, Michael Sanders from Arizona. Good morning. Fort Worth West Side. Uh, Richardson. Good morning. S55B. Dallas area here. Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, Christian, Christian C. Great question. Oh, wait a minute. Let's go back. We, we've got a lot of questions coming in when we do. Quite often, this thing skips right over it. Uh, should a person, Christian C, should a person on keto carnivore diet have an OGTT test done? I've heard it will trigger a false positive for diabetes. You know, I went way deep into that. That's an urban myth. Uh, when you actually look at it, uh, the evidence would indicate it doesn't really impact it either way. Uh, there's some studies, if you look at them, uh, in the New England Journal that I found a couple of decades from a couple of decades ago. And yeah, everybody says, oh, you got to do a, uh, a carb load for three days prior. And we will put that in our, um, in our instructions. But the real evidence, when you look at it, indicates our body does not need a three-day carb load. It's going to recognize those carbs immediately and react the way it usually does. Peter Graham, yeah, I, go ahead. I was just going to say that is an interesting question, you know, it, that I often get as well. And, um, you know, uh, on some level, you look at that and say, well, there's really no, uh, you know, do we get any useful information from putting ourselves through an artificial, uh, you know, sort of scenario like that? If you're not going to, you know, eat sugar uh, in high degrees and especially liquid, you know, highly processed sugar, which the OGTT is, um, you know, how much useful information does it end up giving you, uh, in that scenario? Um, I think it's a very useful test early, you know, if you're just starting this journey, you're not sure where your metabolic health is. I think it's a very useful test. I'm not sure it's as useful a test ultimately, you know, if you've improved your metabolic health, you're doing well, uh, you know, all of your other markers look good. I'm not sure, you know, 
that it is all that useful to test at that part in the process. It's, um, it's helpful to understand your level. And one of the things that people find is, again, as they drop that body fat, the level of resistance drops dramatically. And I've got quite a few patients to say, look, hey, I'm an addict. If I start eating carbs again, even if I just do the test itself, that sugary drink, I fall off the table. I, I go crazy and then just eat carbs and it go into a bad tailspin. And my advice is, well, then it's not worth it. Don't do it. Yeah. So um, there's a fella named Peter Grant who's raising this question a couple of times. I'm not so strong a believer in liposomal vitamin C. He is, and there are a lot of, a lot of those out there. One of the questions I would have for you is, what's your position? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, you know, so I, I'll broaden this a little bit, I think, to supplements in general. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, these IV uh, vitamin treatments. And, you know, I don't believe that they are a panacea. I don't believe that they should be widely used. I think in situations where you can show measurable defects in or measurable deficiencies uh, in, you know, certain nutrients, whether it be vitamin B, vitamin C, vitamin D, you know, whatever it is, uh, then I think supplements become useful. And, you know, we can talk about different forms of supplements. But, you know, I view supplements the same way that I view medications, uh, you know, in that we should be uh, targeting these things towards uh, measurable deficiencies in most cases. Sometimes it's a measurable excess of something that we're trying to treat uh, with a supplement, but there should be something measurable that should correlate to symptoms that patients are having. And then as we use the supplement, um, we should be able to, again, measure that that has improved, their, sup their uh, symptoms improve, uh, and those are the situations where I think supplements are useful. Uh, but, uh, you know, whether it's liposomal vitamin C, um, even, you know, vitamin D, um, uh, you know, none of these things should just be blindly uh, recommended for everyone um, is my general uh, take on that. Got a little bit, got a little bit, of, I think, I'm not sure if that happened just for me or for it's happening for the uh, for the whole, I would say this, um, it reminds me of a comment. You can't out prescribe a, uh, a lifestyle issue. You can't out stent a lifestyle issue. You can't out bypass a lifestyle issue. And to many people's chagrin, especially a lot of folks that, that come on YouTube, you can't you either. There's no question. There's evidence behind every one of those things that I talked about. Stents, medications, bypasses, and grafts, but, and supplements. Now, there's clearly evidence behind supplements. It, you got to look at the specific supplement and where the evidence is. You mentioned vitamin D3. I tend to recommend vitamin D3. Uh, the two most common uh, supplements that I'll, I will use and recommend are vitamin D3 and niacin, but uh, they have their place. Uh, both of them have are not totally innocuous, totally harmless, um, and uh, they're not going to outdo a lifestyle. 
So thanks so much for your position on that. Just Rusty talks about that as well. He was uh, taking vitamin C, um, did spike. Uh, after four hours, uh, he got his blood glucose back down to 85. My perspective would be first, let's take a look at that actual pattern and make sure that that's not, that's a very, very common thing that we see. It's called delay of that first response. The, the pancreas actually stores insulin. And one of the first things that we do, especially when your basal insulin starts going up to try to keep that fasting glucose down, your pancreas is not able to store insulin so much. And then it loses what we call that first phase, that reaction within half an hour. And then you start reacting three and four hours into it. That's a classic response, just Rusty. So um, I'm not sure that I would attribute all of that to vitamin C just yet. Gianluigi from Milan, Italy. Thank you so much for sharing. Now, uh, Madhavi Dasari from India. Iron deficiency anemia not improving with ferrous fumarate in folate supplementation. Have heart palpitations. Uh, Phil, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, this is a situation where I would certainly be uh, suspicious about gut inflammation and uh, leaky gut. And, you know, if you're... Uh, you know, how these things are being absorbed, uh, you know, looking at your vitamin B12 levels, because that's going to uh, play a part uh, in uh, iron uh, metabolism as well. Uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe something like an MT uh, HFR, uh, or, sorry, MT FHR uh, mutation, you know, if you're uh, uh, with the folate, um, you know, oftentimes, uh, many times I'll say, uh, maybe we could say most times, you know, it's not as simple as iron is low, you have to give iron. And as uh, Madavi is uh, experiencing here, uh, you know, it sounds like they've given the iron, um, they're, you know, given the folate, it's still not getting better. And that just tells me that you have to keep looking down the, uh, you know, down the pathway, um, look at, you know, metabolic health first and foremost. Uh, because if you are, you know, treating all of these deficiencies with supplements, but you're not addressing the underlying issue, which many times can be poor metabolic health that led to these deficiencies in the first place, you're not going to get uh, the results. Uh, so, um, you know, those, those would be some of my thoughts along those lines. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for mentioning MTHFR. It's uh... For the technical geeks, that stands for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. And here's the thing. Uh, there was a fellow, I'm, he's a com, he, he has a very popular YouTube. I'm blanking on him on the name. Um, he does songs uh, making fun of things, and he's a, an intensivist. And he covered MTHFR once. And he said, yeah, it's real, but it doesn't make a difference. I would say, yeah, if you're an intensivist, yeah, it does not make a difference in your practice. But if you're a prevention guy like you and myself, uh, it makes a difference. There's no question that uh, it, uh, it makes a difference. So what is it? It's our body's way of managing the oxidation process. You know, like we've said many times, things that make you strong can often also be your weak spot. So humans get 36 energy components out of a, out of a four or six carbon or out of a six carbon uh, thing like a sugar. 
uh, fungi yeast get six. The reason we get 36 is because of iron, oxygen. We oxidize things. Well, that means we've got these mitochondria in our cells and in our heart cells, we may have hundreds or thousands of mitochondria. Those are like little furnaces. And if you've got a furnace and it burns for about 60 years, sometimes it gets holes in the wall. Sometimes it leaves little oxidized or smoking embers. And that's exactly what happens with us. Now our body, so that leads to, how do we get rid of that? That leads to this whole market thing of take antioxidant supplements, vitamins A, C, and E. Well, that's not the way the body does it. You know, antioxidants have become a multi-billion dollar industry. And, you know, some of the exuberance that we see for vitamin C is antioxidant. Well, again, our body does it differently. Our body, instead of just doing that, uh, it, it goes back to chemistry, high school chemistry, and say, it's oxidized, let's reduce it. The typical oxidation would be adding a, an oxygen uh, molecule. Typical reduction would be adding a, a hydrogen atom. Our body does something slightly different. Our body adds a full methyl group. So that's where you get the term MTHFR, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. Now there's genetics that you can do, less than, than half of us actually up have the appropriate genetics for MTHFR. It is real. It does have an impact in terms of tissue damage in our eyes and other tissue damages in our cardiovascular system. Um, I, because I used to work at a human genetics lab, got mine for free and it was clear. I've got both, uh, both risk genes in terms of N MTHFR. What do I do? I take a, it's a very, very simple uh, thing. I take um, uh, vitamin B12 complex methylated groups. That's how our body actually manages this process. Should you do more? Uh, probably not, at least on a practical basis, that's my position. So it's a very complicated issue, gets really geeky, but the resolution, the countermeasure is really pretty simple. And you find tons of those out there. Um, uh, Thorn Methylguard Plus, there's, you know, Doctor's Best has a good option. There's several other options out there. Any other comments on that? No, you know, just, uh, you know, you kind of uh, triggered a thought on this as well, you know, is that, uh, you know, getting these things uh, from your food wherever possible from whole real food um, is oftentimes going to be uh, processed different, as you said, by our bodies and better. Uh, so, you know, again, if someone is coming to me with iron deficiency anemia, one of my first questions would be, you know, how much beef are you eating? How much iron, how much liver are you eating? Uh, you know, iron rich foods. Um, are oftentimes going to be better than iron supplements when we're trying to overcome these issues. Very, very good point. Fort Worth West Side, you skipped most of all the first questions. So here's a couple of issues, Fort Worth. Number one, when we get a lot of participation like we have today, that's just reality. It's going to happen. Um, I don't know, Phil, how much more time do you have for Q&A yeah, I could go about 10 more minutes here, so we could certainly hit a few more. Let's do it then. So Sax Girl Hornboy says, one of the best shows ever. 
Thanks so much. Thanks times a thousand. Drax of the North, can someone be on a clean keto diet for two years or more and still have insulin resistance? Take it. Yeah, I, I would say you certainly can, um, you know, realize that, you know, a problem that sometimes, you know, we've been 40 or 50 years into the problem, it might not be completely undone in two years. Um, it's going to be greatly improved in my experience. Um, but I can certainly, you know, I, I know people who have been doing a pretty clean diet uh, and uh, still has some insulin resistance, sometimes because, you know, the diet isn't quite as clean as it may be, you know, specifically when people talk about being on a ketogenic diet, I still ask them, you know, how much processed food are you eating? You know, what are those sources of fat in your diet? Uh, because if you're getting a lot of the fat that's fueling your ketogenic diet from, you know, vegetable and seed oils, that's going to be a problem. Um, specifically talking about vegetable and seed oils, and we haven't gotten into this much today, uh, but we know that these things are, uh, can persist in our fat cells for years, um, you know, and so it can take years uh, to get them out and to really overcome uh, that insulin resistance. And we also have to realize that, you know, people with advanced type 2 diabetes um, you know, can get into, uh, you know, there are some different terms. We use the type one and a half or the uh, LADA, uh, you know, uh, um, where you actually get a degree of type one diabetes where you simply cannot make enough insulin any longer. And, uh, you know, that can be a very difficult uh, problem to overcome. That can be very persistent. So uh, the unfortunate answer to this is yes, uh, you can be doing, you know, can have a very clean ketogenic diet and still remain insulin resistant for years. So, yeah, I would say the same thing. And you see it with two different uh, issues most often. Uh, one is the assumption that I can eat all I want as long as I don't eat any carbs. Well, again, that gets back to the issue. You know, even a, a low carb diet is not going to overcome a lifestyle issue. And it's a lifestyle issue if you're eating too many calories. And even though it's low carb, it can cause a problem. If you go back and you look at uh, one of my videos titled The Secret Life of Fat Cells, it's covering a, a, a lecture that was award winning lecture of the same name. We used to think fat tissue was inert energy storage tissue, and now it's become crystal clear. It's anything but that. So uh, fat drives this problem, as Phil and I have mentioned multiple times on this show already. So just so your, uh, your keto doesn't mean you can eat all you want. You got to have a healthy weight. Then there's the other issue, genetics. And Johnny brings it up I'll, before I read his comment. I'll say, you know, I'm a poster boy for, you know, my uh, BMI was 21, 22 when I discovered my own prediabetes and then actually documented uh, a couple of blood sugars over 200. So therefore met the criteria for full blown type two diabetes, even though I'm pretty skinny. So it's not all just uh, your diet. It's not all just body fat. There's some genetics there too. Johnny F says, I feel genetics also plays a large role. I had an aunt who passed recently at 94. Other than being a non-smoker and drinker, did not follow a healthy life by today's definition, minimal exercise. Any comments? 
Well, yeah, you know, so I would go back here and say, you know, so if your aunt was 94 and she just passed away, um, you know, she was born in the 1910s, 1920s, let's say. And so realize that for probably the first 50 years of her life, she did not eat any processed food or, or very minimal amounts because it just wasn't present, uh, you know, to a large degree in our in our food environment. Um, and it's just interesting, you know, when you make the comment about, you know, a healthy life by today's definition um, is, uh, is a pretty, uh, uh, you know, variable thing. And, uh, you know, non-smoker, non-drinker, first of all, is a great start. Uh, I think those are two, um, you know, uh, habits that are going to support good health. Uh, not eating processed food for the first half of your life, uh, again, is going to have a big impact. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not discounting the role of genetics, but in general, I think that genetics play a smaller role in this than we perceive. Uh, we tend to blame genetics these days because these problems are so ubiquitous around us. So it's easy to say, okay, my dad had heart disease, my brother has heart disease, I have heart disease, it must be, must be genetic. But the reality is, is that, you know, your dad and your brother and you all have the same habits. Um, you know, habits get passed down in families. Uh, and when we just look at the simple facts that, you know, heart disease was essentially non-existent, you know, uh, in uh, the turn of the 20th century, you know, 1900, and it became ubiquitous by 2000 in a hundred year, you know, uh, time span, genetics don't change that quickly. Uh, on the population level, you know, genetics change over thousands of years, eons, uh, they don't change over 100 years. So it can't be genetics that explains why heart disease went from non-existent in 1900 to ubiquitous in 2000. Really good points. Fort Worth Westside, you may not have heard this, Phil, and you may think, uh, you may want to argue with it or debate it a little bit. Um, I'll tell you where it comes from. She said, you said lowering carbs may cause your calcium score to increase by more hard plaque developing. Over time, could the added plaque actually cause severe enough blood flow restriction to be dangerous? The answer is no. What, what's going on is you're decreasing the inflammation of that plaque. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, it, those of us who do a thing called CIMT, which is not very common, uh, it's not supported well in most uh, medical communities, uh, see this. It's really clear. When people start, I mean, and I'll have patients come to me, they'll say, look, I, one of the most common reasons for coming to me is I had a positive calcium score. I lost 30 pounds and my calcium score went way up. I expected it to go the other direction. And my perspective is calm down realize that those of us who watch plaque on a much more uh, regular basis know that calcification is a part of the process of decreasing inflammation and stabilizing that plaque. Uh, yeah, you know, you know go yeah, ahead. so one of the, I, I would just say one of the nuances about, you know, following coronary artery calcium schemes is, you know, it's not just the total number. Uh, and, you know, one of the key things that I look for uh, when I'm doing serial uh, calcium scans on patients is, you know, are you forming new areas of calcification 
versus, you know, the areas of calcification that were already present, uh, you know, getting a little denser. Um, and that goes along with what you were saying, you know, um, are you sort of calcifying established areas or are you now, are you forming calcium in new areas, which is a major uh, kind of danger sign, a major uh, warning there. So, um, you know, all of this stuff uh, gets complex, gets nuanced, and, and you know, the coronary artery calcium scan is certainly um, a uh, tool uh, that can be misunderstood, can be misused. Uh, and so that's why it's really important to find good practitioners who, you know, understand this. Um, and uh, I've had, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to have conversations with Dr. Agatston. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he obviously has, you know, I would say more insight than anyone on this test that, you know, he kind of developed himself uh, and has been looking at now for, uh, you know, 40-ish years. Uh, and those are the types of uh nuances that come out of conversations like that. And when you're working with a practitioner who really understands that, um, you know, that's where you can uh, use these tests most effectively. Very, very helpful. A couple of quick questions and then we should be uh, good to go. Sex girl horn boy, can a nuclear stress test, myocardial perfusion, yield useful information over and above the calcium score and other non-invasive tests? Yeah, so, you know, important to understand that a nuclear stress test is a different, it's looking at something different than a coronary artery calcium score. And the uh, nuclear stress test is looking at, um, you know, are there areas of your heart that are not getting adequate perfusion, not getting adequate blood flow? So this, again, is going to be an end stage uh, you know, part of the process. And uh, it's not a very good screening test for people who are not having symptoms. Um, there are many false negatives, false positives. Um, you know, uh, it, it's one of these tests that um, I would say the healthcare system likes because they can be done, uh, you know, a lot. They, they generate a lot of income uh, and they lead to a lot of other testing uh, down the line. Uh, so that's why I think the nuclear stress test has become so uh, sort of uh, popular. Uh, it's so widely used. Um, but uh, for people who are not having symptoms and are just looking to detect the early stages of disease, uh, the nuclear stress test is, is not useful. Um, whereas this coronary artery calcium scan is useful in that situation. So I've got a series of videos. We talk about it a lot. How to evaluate plaque. Believe it or not, uh, I don't recommend people hang a lot of their uh, a lot of information on uh, Framingham. And the reason is a couple of reasons. Number one, every doc thinks he's or she, or she knows it, and they don't. And they don't include what they need to have, which is a more a broader discussion about risk factors. Number two. More recent data indicates that the risk associated with that is actually twice as high as reality, especially for women. And I, you know, we'll get in, we can go into the details of that, but it has to do with the fact that the data that it's built on is just too old now. Uh, so uh, the other common, you know, it's the, the steps, the um, Framingham leading to a stress test, leading to a, um, 
going to the cath lab for an angiogram leading to a stent. I, you know, I call that the unholy uh, uh, sliding board, the, un, the unholy uh, uh, sliding down the hill. So yeah. <laughs> slippery slope. It's a slippery slope, yep. What I do recommend is calcium score, as you've mentioned, CIMT. And again, a lot of people, I get a lot of haters for that. I don't recommend it like a lot of the people that use it do. I, I recommend it slight, in a slightly different way. It's the only one that's going to show us, do we have cardiovascular inflammation or do is our plaque stable? And that's the focus point. The third one, and it's a newcomer, and I, I uh, have been positive about what the information that is coming out, and that's CT angiogram. Any comments about that? Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of the CT angiogram as well. Um, you know, again, used appropriately. It, it's not my first screening test, but certainly for people who have um, either high CAC score um, or, uh, you know, there's some other reason that we're concerned that they're going to have a lot of soft plaque, which won't show up on the CAC scan, I think going to the CT angiogram makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, uh, I, I agree with you that, you know, the nuclear stress test, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, will lead down that slippery slope. And uh, for people, as I said, who are, you know, not having any symptoms of heart disease, um, I uh, am not a big uh, I'm not a fan of the stress test. And so CAC, CT angiogram, uh, you know, are going to be uh, my go-to as well. Um, my only issue with the CIMT scan is just it's difficult to get a good one. So yeah. if you're able to get a good one uh, and then you're able to go back and get it reproduced over time, I think the CIMT can be very useful. Uh, but the vast majority of CIMT scans that people get are not good ones, uh, are not reproducible over time, and therefore they just end up being not as useful. I would agree. Most of the, it's the biggest issue is garbage in, garbage out, and most of the ones that get brought to me are garbage. So yeah. uh, maybe a great way to end up. Uh, I, I'm about to turn into a pumpkin, so I'm going to need to go. You mentioned that Very you have good. some limits too. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed today. Do you have any uh, final comments before we go? Uh, no, I just uh, thank you for having me on. This is a great community. I look forward to uh, interacting more. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, just uh, if anyone, uh, so I, I'm just going to put out there for anyone who uh, isn't sure about their metabolic health, um, you know, uh, please start. I have a free resource at my website, which is at ifixhearts.com. And it's just a metabolic health calculator. We'll take you through the basics of assessing your metabolic health and uh, lead you, you know, to some uh, tips for improvement from there. Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Very good. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.